Good evening, everyone. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical Society's president and CEO, and it is truly a pleasure for me to welcome all of you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. I want to make sure that um, all of you take notice of the fact that we have both the 13th Amendment and the Emancipation Proclamation signed by Abraham Lincoln on view uh, just outside the auditorium and a bit to the right. If you haven't had a chance to have a look at them yet, um, that is before you came into the auditorium, I want to invite you to have a look as you exit. And of course, please do return during regular museum hours to see our spectacular exhibition on World War II in New York City and our exhibition upstairs on the sculptor John Rogers. And of course, coming early next month will be Audubon's aviary, the complete flock, it will be a real treat, I know. So um, lots going on. And of course, I want to mention our uh, new Bernard and Irene Schwartz film series, which is part of our Friday night pay-as-you-wish. Film is free with your pay-as-you-wish, so it's virtually free. And uh, I want to invite you back and hope that you join us for these wonderful films and uh, wonderful historians and authors who, uh, who speak about them. Um, I also want to make sure that everyone in this auditorium is a member of the New York Historical Society. Uh, that is how we support all of the great work that we do. And um, those of you who are members, I thank you. And those of you who are not yet members, uh, I encourage you to join. My colleagues are happy to help you join after the program. And uh, I know that there are plenty of opportunities, lots of materials where you can just sign your name. Um, I also want to recognize a very special supporter in the audience this evening, our trustee, Mr. Richard Reese, and thank him for all his generosity and hard work on our behalf. Thank you, Rick. Now then, tonight's program, Technology, Innovations, and Expanding Frontiers, is a part of the Harold and Ruth Newman World Beyond Tomorrow series. I am so very thrilled and proud to be able to thank Mr. and Mrs. Newman in person. They're here with us this evening, and I want to thank them and recognize their extraordinary generosity and concern for this great institution's intellectual core by sponsoring this evening's program. Thank you very, very much, Harold and Ruth. When Mr. Newman proposed the idea for this series, he was thinking of the 1939 New York World's Fair and its theme of building the world of tomorrow. The fair, as you know, promoted an almost unqualified belief in science and technology as a means to economic prosperity and personal freedom. For this series, Mr. Newman, those of you who know him won't be surprised, wanted to push us beyond the frontiers of tomorrow to the world beyond tomorrow. Um, and consider a future that, though speculative, uh, nevertheless would provoke us to think more deeply about our behaviors and activities today. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing microphones to my left and to my right. Uh, we do this so that everyone in the audience can hear your question and so that the speakers can hear your question as well. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with David Sanger, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We also have pre-signed copies of Walter Isaacson's books, which are available for purchase in our museum store as well. We are so very pleased to welcome Walter Isaacson back to the New York Historical Society. 
He's president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, a nonpartisan educational and policy studies institute based in Washington, D.C. He's a former chairman of CNN and former managing editor of Time magazine, where he also served as a political correspondent, national editor and editor of new media over the course of 23 years with the magazine. Mr. Isaacson is a distinguished biographer and the author of the acclaimed books Einstein, His Life and Universe, Benjamin Franklin and American Life, and Steve Jobs. And I should add that he was our honoree at our History Makers Gala this past November, and it was um, spectacular to have him as our honoree. We're very proud indeed. We're also delighted to welcome David E. Sanger, the chief Washington correspondent of the New York Times. In a 27-year career at the paper, Mr. Sanger has covered a wide variety of issues surrounding foreign policy, globalization, and nuclear proliferation. After specializing in the computer industry and high technology trade when he first joined the paper. He twice has been a member of uh, the Times reporting teams that won the Pulitzer Prize. His latest book is Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. As always, uh, before we welcome our speakers to the stage, please do make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers. Well, David, welcome to the most beautiful auditorium in Manhattan. <laughs> and thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Newman, for uh, doing this. You know, you have broken a lot of stories about cyber war, cybersecurity, it's both the dark side and, in some ways, the new interesting side of what technology and how it will change our lives. Um, let's start with Obama before he was even president. What was his thinking about cyber technology, cyber war, cyber privacy? Well, Walter, first I just want to thank uh, the New York Historical Society and all of you. I really feel like I have come back home when I was six, seven, ten years old. My grandfather and my uncle used to take me up to the library here to go look at maps of New York during the Revolution. Uh, they all grew up within ten blocks north and south of here. So uh, this has always been uh, sort of a, a cornerstone for me. So it's a great honor to be back here. Um, when President Obama was running uh, in 2008, uh, he ran several campaign events that were essentially roundtables about cybersecurity. And his own political aides were looking around saying, what voter cares? Why are we doing this? And has this ever been discussed in a presidential campaign before? And I'm sure the answer to the last one was it was not. What's interesting is that in his mind, he was concerned about the privacy issues. And they were the privacy issues that came up out of the networking of the society that uh, really happened just as he was, began to happen as he was a college student here in New York. And uh, you know, I remember in those days, I was a young technology correspondent uh, for the Times, I won't say how many years ago, and I uh, was covering Steve Jobs as he was bringing out the first computers and talking about a completely opened, networked world in which everybody could reach into everything. Mm -hmm. And we all thought of it in one direction. 
which is all the information we could get. Google hadn't been invented, but we were thinking of what you could get in that regard. And it has really not been, except in the past 10 years, that people have begun to recognize that as you put all your personal information together, and that's really what Obama was thinking about, as you network all of our systems, as you put together the cell phone system, as you put together the electric power grid, as you put together um, emergency responders, that all of a sudden we've created a great vulnerability because systems that were never linked into each other now are, and you can't just, you, in taking out one, you can take them all out. I think that President Obama didn't really recognize the depth of that until he actually was inaugurated. Mm -hmm. Wait, before we get that, to the, uh, you know, the cyber war, mm -hmm. you just touched on privacy. I want to get it straight. My daughter's a tech columnist now at age 22 for the Huffington Post, and she says, Dad, privacy... You didn't save her from journalism no, when you I had tried. the chance? No, I tried. Yeah. She studied computer <laughs> science or something. Yeah. But she says, Dad, privacy, get over it. That's so uh, your generation. Um, are we over-concerned about privacy? Um, I think that it is generational to some degree. I mean, you have a sharing generation out there that puts everything on Facebook more than you. If your daughter has a Facebook account, my suggestion is don't go look at it, even no. if she lets you go do it. Okay. Um, then we have an older generation that is very concerned about this. We had a story in the paper today about somebody who's put together a business about the links among CEOs because CEOs never use Facebook or other social media mm -hmm. uh, uh, very much. Um, we have a concern. It's a very real concern that comes from the fact that everybody's heard stories of how your bank account gets cleaned out uh, or what happens as your social security number makes it out and around. On the other hand, I think there is a generational divide here in which a lot of information that uh, some of us might be shocked is out there Younger people will say, look, if you put it on a computer screen, you've got to expect everybody's going to read it. And my great example from this, uh, Walter, and it wasn't that, uh, that big a, uh, a generational divide, when WikiLeaks happened two years ago, which you remember was the State Department uh, cables, 250,000 of them that I had the pleasure with a team of Times reporters of having to go sort through. When we finally began to publish that, uh, I was teaching a course uh, up at the Harvard Kennedy School, and it's got some military officers in it. They're in their 30s. They were shocked. Anything that was marked classified, how could it possibly appear in the New York Times or anyplace <laughs> else? The undergraduates who were in the class were looking at them like, are you guys kidding? Yeah. What, what world are you living in? If it went out over electrons, you have to assume it's going to get out. And they're only 10 years apart. Right, right. So Obama becomes president, and suddenly this issue is not one of privacy, but offensive military capability. He gets presented with something, I think, the very day he and George Bush sit down for the transition. Right? That's right. Uh, about uh, a week before uh, President uh, Obama, or then-President-elect Obama, took over, uh, President Bush invited him over to the White House for that great tradition in uh, American transfer of power, which is the ex-president calls in, uh, I'm sorry, the soon-to-be ex-president calls in the president-elect and says, here are the things I think you really ought to pay attention to. Uh, we've not been able to fully reconstruct that conversation, but one part of it, he said, look, there are two programs that you are going to definitely want to retain 
for your administration, no matter what you said during the campaign. One of them is the least covert, covert program in America. It's the drone program. And the president took his advice. Correct. There were 48 strikes in Pakistan during the entire time George Bush was president, plus or minus a couple. By the time Barack Obama got inaugurated last month for the second time, he had done 300. So a six-fold increase. The second program was the most covert covert program in America. It was called Olympic Games, and it had nothing to do with what you saw in London last year. It was the program that came up from the moment that the military and the CIA came in to see President Bush in about 2006, 2007, and said, look, we have a big problem if the Iranians get a nuclear weapon. We have a bigger problem if the Israelis bomb the site. So as the president was always saying, he needed a third way. The third way they offered up to him was for the first time in American history, do a sustained cyber attack on another state by designing a computer worm that would get into the computer controllers at Natanz, which is the big enrichment site in the deserts uh, of Iran and that would, over time, take over those computers and go into the centrifuges, which are these big floor-to-ceiling silvery machines that spin at supersonic speeds, and make them speed up or slow down until they wobble out of control and explode. This is what was referred to as Stuxnet, but the official name was Olympic Games. The program was called Olympic Games. Stuxnet was the mistake, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah, okay. that, that, that happened at the end. Um, President Bush didn't believe that this would work. And so the first thing they did was they created a model of the Iranian nuclear plants spread out among several of the American energy laboratories, which is where out the U.S. designs nuclear weapons, the Idaho National Lab and several others. And then they designed this code, and they attacked what they had, the, the centrifuges, which were exactly the same kind that the Iranians had, or very close to it. We had benefited from the fact that A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani who had been selling this to Iran and North Korea and others, uh, had sold them to Libya, and the Libyans turned them over to the U.S. in an effort to right. win our good graces. It didn't, the story didn't work out so well for the Libyans at the end. Uh, but at least, in, yeah. in any case, uh, they attacked these. They blew up several of the centrifuges. They picked up the rubble. They put it on an airplane. They flew it to Washington. They took it to the White House and dumped it out on the, in the Situation Room on the conference table. And when President Bush saw the remnants of some of these centrifuges, he said, Okay, go ahead. And Obama says? So Obama comes to the, all of these issues having talked about privacy, having talked about protecting America, and never having really given a lot of thought to using cyber as an offensive weapon. But given the same choice that President Bush had, which is letting the Iranians get a bomb or letting the Israelis bomb the Iranians, he thinks, let's ramp this up. And so you suddenly ended up with a White House that in 2009 and 2010 was talking more than any American president ever had about building cyber defenses for the United States, an effort that continues to this day. Just this afternoon, the president signed 
a new directive on cybersecurity. Now, Meanwhile, down that, in the basement, yeah. they're designing cyber weapons. Right. Um, how much of a difference is there between cyber defense and cyber offense? Can you separate them? The only difference is who's doing it. No. <laughs> so tell me about the thing he signed today, which you wrote about, of course, three or four days before he signed it. Being the well, we were slow. You know? yeah. All right. uh, tell, what, what does it do and does it... For example, you got hacked, Aspen Institute got hacked, most of our banks have been hacked. Does it yes. protect private uh, commercial enterprises? The effort is, for the first time, to have the U.S. government share both unclassified and classified intelligence that they've gathered uh, with companies. Until now, the National Security Agency might see an attack gathering in China, in Russia, in Romania, at the Aspen Institute. Mm -hmm. Who knows what your guys are doing during the dead night, right? And when they see it happening, they were prohibited from actually telling anybody because it was all classified data. So they would see these electrons flowing in to what's called internet service providers, you know, the people who spread the internet out to all of us. And all they could do was look at it and say, boy, that's gonna really hurt. You know, they did, as I say, attack and I think it was the Chinese. You'll get into that in a moment. Sure. But we got attacked in the Aspen Institute, along with the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, many others, uh, where they hacked in. And you're right. For the first time, the government called. And we got a call from Homeland Security, then the FBI saying, your computers have been hacked. And I must say my first reaction was, you know, fine. We spend a whole lot of time trying to get people to read what the Aspen Institute does. I'm glad the Chinese are going to waste a lot of time translating our old reports. And, and it was a month later they called back and said, and by the way, I said, you know, we're, we're, we're okay. I was probably, and the, uh, it was an FBI agent at this point. He said, well, let me tell you your Citibank password and your Morgan Stanley password. And he gave it out loud. I said, okay, and we got Brookings and a few others together and wiped our computers clean. Who would be doing these attacks and why? Well, in the case of the Aspen Institute and in the case of the Times, um, there's every indication that the origin was China. But saying that the origin is China doesn't tell you exactly who it is that's doing it. And one of the great difficulties in deterring cyber attacks versus, say, deterring nuclear attacks, if you want to think back to the last big problem of the Cold War, is that the good news about nuclear attacks, if you can imagine the good news about nuclear missiles coming in, is that, as you know from the movies, you could sit in a big mountain in Colorado and look up on a big screen, and you could see where the attack was coming from. You could see that little image of everything lifting up out of the Soviet Union. You know, this is what made Failsafe such a great movie, and Dr. Strangelove, and the list goes on, right? If you had the equivalent of Cheyenne Mountain for cyber, and you were looking at the last place that attack on the Aspen Institute or the New York Times or yeah. any place else happened, it would probably be out of a university in Georgia or in South Carolina, because what happens with cyber attacks is you can move them, if you're good at this, through false servers. Right. And universities are considered to be a wide open area because they've got a lot of, of broadband space and usually not fabulous security. 
Would we have a doctrine in the United States, and will we or should we, that if indeed the uh, PLA, the Army in China, had authorized these attacks, we'd retaliate with an attack that's a cyber attack on Chinese? The Defense Department about a year and a half ago issued a, uh, a, the first sort of cyber doctrine along those lines that said that if the United States is attacked, it would retaliate in, in a proportionate way, hmm. but perhaps not necessarily just with cyber. It left open the possibility that you could have a kinetic attack. You could bomb a facility that was coming in to do a cyber attack on the United States. Now, it's one thing to say it, because those are the kinds of things we used to say during the Cold War. It's another thing to do it. Okay, so imagine this for a minute, Walter. You're the president. I always think of you as the president anyway, okay? <laughs> okay, so somebody comes in and says, um, sir, the Pentagon's computers are under attack. And you turn around and say, great, let's go retaliate against them. And they say, well, that's fabulous, sir, but we've looked out and we followed it back from a server in South Carolina to a server in China, and we're not entirely sure whether or not this is a government server or whether this is a bunch of teenage hackers. And you sort of want to know that before you start a war up. But it gets even more complicated. Remember when Google was attacked back in 2009? There are many at Google and many other places who wanted to go take retaliatory action themselves. And in fact, at the moment that they called you with your Citibank account, you probably had the, the thought in your own mind, except the guys at Google know how to do it. Um, and that raises a whole new question. If you had companies counterattacking for attacks that they received, you could get the United States into a broader war that nobody in the government even knew about it's until sort of like it was happening. World War I, it happens by mistake. That's right. Uh, do we have in the United States an offensive cyber command that if the president said, okay, you've given me all that gobbledygook about we don't quite know, take out Beijing's electricity grid by tomorrow morning, could we do it? We not only have one, we have about five or six, and they're all fighting with each other, you'll be this glad to know, okay? But there is one overall called um, Cyber Command now. It's a division of Strategic Command, which is the command that runs all those nuclear weapons we were talking about. Now, the president, uh, over the next uh, few months, is going to be announcing a reduction in nuclear weapons. But he's also trying to pour more money into Cyber Command. In fact, Cyber Command is one of the few places in the US government that's hiring in a very big way. Right. And of course, competing with Google and Apple and everybody else, because this is high-priced talent. Uh, the concern is that, yes, we could go do it, but would it be proportionate? So if they're attacking the Pentagon, for example, do you want to turn out all the lights in Beijing, which would include the hospitals and the schools and the nurseries and, you know, all of that? And so what's interesting about the way the president has approached Olympic Games, the attack on Iran, is he had two big concerns. One was no collateral damage. So he wanted to make sure that the attacks were right on the nuclear facility, but not on the nearby hospital or the power grid. And the second was do our best to keep this secret, because if the United States is conducting offensive activities, then 
it would be very easy for the Chinese, the Russians, some hacker group in someplace else to come back and say, we're not doing anything to you that you aren't doing to Iran. And that becomes difficult to explain. One of the reasons that I wrote about Olympic Games and Confront and Conceal and the reason that we revealed it in the Times was to try to force the US government into a position of setting up some rules about, or at least discussing some rules, about when the US uses offensive cyber weapons. And we've done this before, Walter. We've done this in the nuclear age. We've done it for almost every weapon that exists. That exists. From mines in the ocean to nuclear weapons, we have rules we have of rules. engagement. We don't have public rules, and I'm not even sure we have private ones, for cyber, because the US government has never acknowledged owning cyber weapons. So I'm sorry, if we don't have rules of engagement, what does that mean? Any colonel in the Pentagon can launch one, or it has to go to the president to launch well, it, or Tom Donilon does it? Right, so we, uh, we ran a story about uh, oh, a week ago Monday about the first development of some internal rules. And basically, any major cyber attack, anything beyond a trivial cyber attack, has got to get approved by the president, which tells you they view this weapon as, as potent as a nuclear weapon. You were talking about both drones and cyber attacks. And they sort of go together in that Tonight, the president will announce the withdrawal of 34,000 troops from Afghanistan. So instead of having boots on the ground, we think we can now conduct war from a console in the United States, send in a drone that's unmanned, do cyber attacks, whatever. Do you think that that's a new war fighting doctrine of a light footprint that we're doing, and is it a good idea? Well, the central argument of confront and conceal is that the Obama doctrine is all about the light footprint. And the light footprint has really had three big elements to it. You named two of them, drones, cyber, and special forces. So for drones, it's remote, and you can sit in Langley or in an Air Force base and run that drone over Yemen or over Pakistan. And that's another area where we've developed some rules. And you heard in the Brennan testimony is for his nomination uh, for CIA director, a lot of discussion about whether we have the rules right. But at least we're discussing what the rules are. Special forces, think of the bin Laden raid. Mm -hmm. There's one where you can't always do it from afar. And the special forces are who you send in when you have to have boots on the ground. But the president has embraced the special forces command precisely because it's the opposite of what you just discussed in Afghanistan or Iraq that where the Obama doctrine differs from President Bush's time is that President Bush was still interested in fighting these sort of traditional wars where you send 100,000 or 150,000 troops into a country, keep them there for five or six years, talk about rewiring the country, whether it's counterinsurgency or whatever, um, wait for the resentments to their presence to build up, uh, and then eventually you leave. <laughs> That's a plan we followed in well, Afghanistan. We've actually executed it quite brilliantly <laughs> twice now in the past 10 years. Um, President Obama executed the Bush plan for getting us out of Iraq. Afghanistan's proven to be a lot harder. And actually, you'll remember that when President Obama came into office, he first talked about Afghanistan as a war of necessity. And he believed that you could remake the country. 2009, after he did the surge, has disabused him of this notion. 
And so you're seeing a withdrawal that's a lot faster than I think they anticipated, certainly faster than President Karzai anticipated. But if you look at the past four years of the Bush administration, I think it's fair to say. Of the Bush? I'm sorry, of the Obama Obama. administration. I think it is quite fair to say that he has embraced light footprint, whether it's drone, cyber, or special forces, while trying to pull out these uh, forces from big, lengthy ground uh, engagements. And the big indicator came a year and a half ago when the Pentagon, actually just a little more than a year ago, when the Pentagon came to him with a budget that included a a standing force of 100,000 soldiers who would be around for what they called contingency operations. And somebody, I think, including Mr. Donilon, sent that note back saying, what contingency operations do you have in mind? And they said, well, you know, things like Iraq and Afghanistan. And the message that came back at a meeting that the president had with the combatant commanders under Lincoln's portrait in the, in the East Room was, you guys didn't read the memo. We're not doing these anymore. So the president believes you can do a lot with the light footprint. But I think Syria and to some degree what we've seen happen in Mali and other places tells you that the light footprint can't do it all. And, you know, it may work in some places, doesn't in others. Um, Last night I did an interview. I think I do this for a living whenever people can't get Charlie Rose. Um, (laughs) uh, With uh, Stan McChrystal, the um, general who helped develop the counterinsurgency strategy. And basically he was saying, you know, you may want to do this with drones, a few special forces, cyber, whatever. But you're not going to know what's going on in the country. You're going to end up killing people wrong. You're going to build up just as many resentments and the drone attacks into somebody else's country. And you're not going to solve the root causes of the problem, which is you need to stabilize, say, Afghanistan. So there's this great debate between what I would call the counterinsurgency believers and the light footprint believers. That's absolutely right. And it gets to this concept of rewiring. We thought we could rewire Iraqi society, and what we're discovering since we've left is it's going back to sort of its norm. We thought we could rewire Afghanistan. Think about the number of speeches, including a number that President Obama gave, saying that we would build up schools, build up justice systems, build up farmers, remake the place, and it would emerge as a significant democracy. Now, if that happens, we're perfectly happy that it's happened. But they've come to the determination it can't be the goal of U.S. Mm -hmm. society. So when you ask the question of the White House, what are you trying to do in Afghanistan, the answer comes back, defeat al-Qaeda. You say, well, al-Qaeda isn't really in Afghanistan. We noticed that. That's why we're leaving. But they are in Pakistan. Now, if you can use cyber and drones and so forth to help disrupt them, they're very willing to go off and do that. Let's go back to cyber, the future of warfare, the future of cyber. What are the things that you think about, worry about, as technology, cyber technology, privacy uh, evolve over the next few years? Well, a few things. First, let's talk about defense, and then let's talk about offense. On the defense side, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. military, the U.S. government, has done a medium effective job of protecting its own networks. Uh, And while they are attacked regularly, and sometimes successfully, you don't hear as much worry about that. The difficulty is that the big targets 
in the United States are not in the government's hands. They are that electric grid. They are that cell phone grid. Uh, they are um, the water supplies, the emergency responders. And as a result, if the government can't mandate some specific level of um, cooperation. cooperation standards for cybersecurity, then they begin to run into the question that, you know, the New York water supply may be great, but the New York electric supply may not be because it could be coming from Canada and somebody could strike it, you mm -hmm. know, someplace else. And so it's all over the lot there. And you heard Leon Panetta, just about to retire this week as the uh, defense secretary, warn of a cyber 9-11. Well, a lot of people think it may take a cyber 9-11 in order to bring up that level of protection, just as it took 9-11 to bring up airport protection. We hope it wouldn't get to that, but when the cyber bill was defeated last year, which would have mandated some level of, of uh, private industry standards, it was defeated because there was a sense, this was the middle of the presidential election, that this was another case of government regulation that would cost corporations billions, and it wasn't clear who it was. Who'd and be will the, the president system. do this by executive order? To the president is doing some things by executive order, but what he can't do is mandate these changes for corporations. So he's sort of done half of the cyber bill. So that's what I worry about on the defense side. On the offense side, I've already hinted at it, that I worry that we're using these weapons without getting into a discussion about how we want to go do it. And we can have that discussion. You know, everything about nuclear weapons is pretty well classified. How you build them, where you put them. And it was a pretty good secret. North Koreans figured it out, apparently, including last night. But, you know, by and large, that, that secrecy was, was kept around sophisticated weapons. But even though the weapon was uh, classified, we had a very vigorous debate in the United States in the 50s and the 60s, all the way through the Cuban Missile Crisis, about when to use these weapons. And we had some crazy generals who wanted to use them at various times. You know, you had people who wanted to use them on the Chinese during the Korean War. You had uh, people who sat in the, uh, in the cabinet room, generals who sat in the cabinet room, and told uh, President Kennedy that it was time to go end everything with the Soviet Union during the Cuban Missile Crisis by just bombing the entire country. He didn't listen to them, fortunately. Out of that and emerged, Vietnam, and Vietnam, there was discussion. And, and it was Curtis LeMay making the same suggestions uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Over time, we came to an understanding you would only use these weapons for national survival. We've not had that debate about cyber. And until we take the lead and have that debate, it's going to be very hard to engage the rest of the world in a debate about But it's a little bit tougher. Much tougher. Because I'm not sure there ought to be that high of a bar. I would prefer, instead of going to war with Iran, to put a virus that messes up their centrifuges. I'm not sure I want to say the rules say we can't do that. That is one of the reasons they're so hesitant to have the debate. First of all, it's a covert weapon, so you, know, you don't debate your covert capability. Secondly, if you think that you can use it in a very narrow, targeted way, same argument you hear about drones, then you may well want to use it for offensive purposes. But then you have to recognize that that's going to make the rest of the world think that 
they can also do the same to us. And of course, we're the most networked society on Earth, and therefore the most vulnerable. Do you think we're the most vulnerable, or do you think if we got into an escalating uh, military environment in which the weapons of choice were cyber weapons, we could end up winning that against any country? We could against any country, but Walter, you're not just fighting countries here. Okay, that's the problem. In the old world of the Soviet Union versus the United States, there was a concept called escalation dominance. As you escalated the counterattack, you could remain in control. But in the case of cyber, you can't because it's never quite clear who the decision makers are. Mm -hmm. right? The weapons in the nuclear world all belong to the government. This gets me back to the question I asked earlier, which is, do we value what we call privacy, but you could also call it anonymity, which is not as beautiful of a word as privacy, where anybody can do things online and nobody knows who you are or where you're coming from. Should the internet in some ways protect anonymity a little bit less, and for that matter, protect privacy a little bit less? So if you're sending something, people know where it's coming from. I mean, that's a technological feasibility if you right. really wanted to redesign the internet protocols. Walter, if, it's, if your concern is somebody going in to say your Merrill Lynch account, I bet you'd be really interested in knowing who that person is. Okay? Right. But if we adopt that rule, who are the first ones who are going to grab onto it? The Chinese. They're going to say, that's right, we want no one anonymous on the internet so that we know the names and addresses of every dissident and Falun Gong member who sends out a message protesting the Chinese government. And so here you have a US government that is completely schizophrenic on this question. Okay? On the one <laughs> hand, we are trying to have enough identity that we can go follow back these attacks. We want to know if the attack came from Iran, from China, from Russia, and then we want to know who in Iran or who in China. And then over at the State Department, what are they doing? Or the Voice of America, BBG, where I was Where, where uh, Walter was running the, uh, uh, the Board of Governors. Um, and the State Department has actually funded a fascinating project that they call basically the Internet in a Suitcase, which is that you could go out to a country where there was an active dissident movement or insurgency and help them put together an internet site that would basically ena enable an entire town, an entire city, to have internet access outside of the control of the government. Because what happened during the uprisings in Tahir Square? The first thing that Mubarak did was cut off those two big pipelines that came into Cairo that controlled everyone's internet access. And remember, the whole place went black for, mm -hmm. for a couple of days until that was put back together. State Department looked at that and said, this isn't good for democracy building. For democracy building, we need anonymity. Mm -hmm. So, And they create things like um, Freegate and other things, some of which were created by the Falun Gong in China right. originally, which are uh, dynamic you know, uh, uh, ways to get uh, onto the internet that aren't through the control of the Chinese government. Sure. But in the end, um, you got to make a choice. And would the world be a better place if in the future we evolve t 
towards a cyber and computer and network society in which it's a little bit more like the real physical world in which you have some privacy, but you're not totally anonymous. If you do something bad, people will notice you and you get caught. I, I, I think that's probably the case, and the cyber forensics are getting better. But let me turn the tables on you on sure. this, since, unfortunately and sadly, we don't have Steve Jobs to ask this question anymore, but we do have his biographer to ask. If you, if you ask Steve Jobs that question, the man who was spreading Mm -hmm. internet connectivity uh, to everybody through our iPhones, through everything that was in everybody's pocket. How would he answer that question? Well, you know, he very much believed that the digital age was empowering to the individual, meaning computers should be on your desktop. They shouldn't be controlled by corporations. Let's create the Mac and let's put icons on it so it can be everybody's computer. And likewise, the iPhone is a particularly good example of that. On the iPhone, there is a certain level of privacy that's better and stronger than, say, Google's or others, meaning it tracks you, it has a GPS, it knows where you went, but it allows you to set those settings so that American Express or other people you may you know, do business with can't always know. But he was not a privacy freak. He said, look, if it, the phone knows your location, that's going to be good for you. It's going to be good all over the city now. People are getting their phones and iPads back because it's find my iPhone, and that's in some ways an invasion of the theft, the thief's privacy, that's which right. is where's the thief now? Okay, I've located him. Um, I think Steve thought that the obsession with anonymity and privacy was a vestige of a baby boom generation uh, and that the new generation would get over it a little bit and that we should all be somewhat responsible for our actions. And that means if you tweet something, if you post something on a bulletin board, if I read the David uh, Sanger piece and I want to say something really bad in the comments section. Oh, you're the one yeah, who's been doing that. I should, um, <laughs> he would feel that you should vaguely think they probably can find out who I am. And that's what tended for the past two, 3,000 years to make society a civil place, which is you feel, I mean, there was a famous, I guess, if you like Plato, wasn't it the ring of Ganges or whatever, which is if you put it on, you become invisible and totally anonymous. And Plato said you'd have no morality in such a world because if everybody were anonymous and invisible, they, they would be immoral, I think. Uh, I don't mean this as a compliment either to Plato or to Steve or to put them in the same sentence, but I think they would have agreed that too much anonymity probably strains the bounds of civil society. I, I agree with that, Walter, completely, but we haven't solved the problem of repressive governments in that, in that respect. So I used to be White House correspondent and during the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. And I remember going with President Clinton to China where he gave a great speech at Beijing University, this would have been mid-late 90s, in which he said, internet freedom is over time going to erode the power of the Communist Party in China. Absolutely. And I think that he must be pretty shocked, it would be good to ask him this question, how 15, 16 years later, 
the Communist Party has managed to put tens of thousands of people to the question of using these devices to track down dissent within their country. Right, and that's why Google and YouTube are censored. I will push back and then open the microphones only to say that in the end, I think, the free flow of information and free flow of ideas bends the arc of history towards democracy and individual freedom. I think you can start 580 years ago or so when Gutenberg does a movable press. And yeah, people tried to crack down on the Bibles and other things that got printed and the censors and others went around. But in the end, you have the Reformation and the Renaissance because ideas can flow and you even have the rise of liberal democracy. When I was um, covering um, Eastern Europe in 1989, I remember being in uh, Bratislava and then, and they put me in the only hotel where foreigners were put because it, it had satellite so you could see outside. And one of the people who worked there said, we want, uh, the kids like to come and use your rooms to, in the afternoon because they like to watch the music videos. And I said, fine. And when I came back to my room, there were some students and they weren't watching the music videos. They were watching what was happening in the Gdansk shipyard with Lekvawensa. They were watching CNN. I said, oh, I get it. The free flow of information means this regime is going to fall soon. And the same in China. I mean, they get their proxy servers. They go, I remember being in Kashgar once and uh, kids on the internet, I said, let me try something. I typed in CNN, it was blocked. And they went, boom, and they brought it up, said, oh, we know proxy servers. In the end, um, it's going to be, I mean, they're going to try to stop the free flow of information, whether it's China, North Korea, or whatever. The digital age makes that harder, and in the end, it's going to be tougher for China to succeed I, I, than I agree, us. I agree with you that in the long run, this is, this is a rising tide. And I think the, the invention of the cell phone has probably done more for democratization around the world than every program, government program we've ever funded. Mm -hmm. And you saw that in how quickly crowds would gather in Egypt, in Tunisia. They did it through instant messaging. They did it through Facebook. What it didn't teach them how to do, and this will come over time, is that the people who could bring down a government couldn't then build up one. Uh, later on, and, and that becomes more difficult. But I agree with you, and I guess my recognition that over the long term, the Communist Party in China had a problem came one day when I was traveling in China with President Bush, and I had written a story about his day. I can't even remember what the story was. And of course, I wanted to do the one thing that all reporters do, which is go online and figure out what some editor had done to your copy so that you know who to scream at, right? And so I went into an internet cafe, and the Times was blocked. And some 10 or 11-year-old kid comes up to me, and he says, what are you trying to do, mister? And I said, I'm trying to get to the New York Times. He says, step aside. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Okay. He starts typing. He's up. He's in Romania someplace. He's down. There's the New York Times homepage. I said, thanks very much. He looks at me and says, five bucks. <laughs> and this is why China will not only become democratic, it'll become capitalist. <laughs> Kids like that. What do you to mean, To the microphones, <laughs> please. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, your name? There is no anonymity or privacy in the New York Historical Society. So say your name, but you don't have to give your social security number. <laughs> My name is Bernard Grossman, and uh, after uh, P. 
people started talking about Stuxnet, there was a concern that it was out in the open that this was a possibility. For a scientist, one of the most difficult things is knowing something is possible. Then a lot of people copy it and vary it. What is the danger of having variations of Stuxnet mm -hmm. in our server farms, in our nuclear reactors, all sorts of places like that? Great question. It's a great question. You know, I mentioned that Stuxnet was the product of a mistake, but I didn't tell you what the mistake was. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this attack on the Iranian uh, enrichment facilities went on brilliantly between 2008 and the summer of 2010. And every two or three weeks, they'd come back in the Situation Room and President Obama would come down and he'd get these briefings and they'd say, look, now we're going to go for this group of centrifuges and that. And in the summer of 2010, the Israelis and the U.S. who were working on this worm together ramped it up. They just torqued it a bit because they were going after a certain stand of centrifuges, a group of about 1,000 of them. And somebody made a mistake. The same way that Microsoft sometimes turns out a version of an operating system and then you're getting patches, you know, three weeks later. Often. Often, right. In Microsoft's And your computer case. is spinning and spinning yeah. away with the update, okay? So they turned this thing out and some Iranian engineer, who probably had no idea this was happening, yeah. goes in, plugs his laptop into the computers that runs Natanz. The worm leapt aboard his laptop and it was supposed to replicate itself just within Natanz, but he went back home he gets onto the web, and as he's surfing the web, the worm didn't recognize that its environment had changed. And it starts taking this worm, which the US and Israeli intelligence agencies had spent untold millions of dollars and great secrecy developing, and it starts replicating across the world. And we begin to see reports in the trade press of this, and somebody named it Stuxnet. It was never a phrase used within the US government. And uh, there was an emergency meeting in the Situation Room in which Leon Panetta, and, uh, who was then the head of the CIA, and others all go down and they have to explain to President Obama and to Vice President Biden uh, and Hillary Clinton and others that this worm has gotten free. And they raised exactly that concern. What could the worm do once it was out there? The president took it very calmly. Joe Biden didn't take it very calmly. I know this will be a shock to all of you. <laughs> and uh, the president decided, you know, let's not shut this thing down. Let's try the attack again. And they did with a variant of the, of the worm. And it did take out 1,000 centrifuges for, for some period of time. Uh, but then the worm was every place. And there was a lot of concern, even within the US government, that even if the worm couldn't attack something that wasn't a group of centrifuges in the desert, that the basic principles of it would be out for the world to see. And they are out there to see. One of the things as we went through, as we were trying to follow the story here, we couldn't have written the whole story of Olympic Games had it not been for this mistake, because suddenly you could do forensics, as the Iranians were, on this actual uh, worm. And there were people who were doing this for us. And one of them came to me one day and said, you know, it's a funny thing about this worm it's got a date in it, a sort of sell-by date, after which it drops dead. <laughs> that date was in the middle of last year. And this was a sign 
that it was a state-developed, right? Because only lawyers would do that. A bunch of kids sitting in somebody's basement wouldn't say, let's make this thing die after two years. Have we seen parts of the code replicated by insidious people? I have not heard of any cases in which that code has been replicated. But I have heard of cases of people who have looked at the elegance of the design, the way you would look at the elegance mm. of one of Steve Jobs' designs, and said, we can make something like this. In other words, like Google did with Android. Just rip it off. Yeah. That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah, we love to think that made in the USA is, is best. And I just wondered, in your view, how good are the North Koreans? How good are the Iranians? How good are the Chinese in terms of their development of potential cyber attacks? The answer is different for each of these countries, and it's a very good question. The Chinese are quite good, and they are putting an awful lot of effort to this. And if you look at the mounting attacks on the United States, a huge number of them come from China. Now, who within China, that's a difficult thing to, you know, what's called attribution is difficult to sort out. There is a lot of speculation that a lot of this is state-sponsored, but every time you ask the Chinese about it, their leaders all have the same answer. Oh, these hackers, somebody's really got to go do something about this, and drug dealers too, okay? So there's, they're quite good. The Russians are quite good. The Iranians started up a cyber division that uh, began right after the Stuxnet virus came out. And it's Iran that is believed to have taken out those 30,000 computers at Saudi Aramco. Mm -hmm. that ha and this happened just last summer. Um, the North Koreans, we haven't seen a lot of that. But in order to develop good cyber weapons, you need to have a pretty good computer infrastructure. And the network infrastructure in North Korea is a little wanting right now. <laughs> yes, sir. My name is uh, Jim Mackin, longstanding member of the New York Historical Society. And don't we want to really encourage cyber attack type activity to find out the limitations? And I'm not just talking at the operational level, say the um, defense system versus the cyber attackers or financial systems versus cyber attackers, but really at the theoretical level. Don't we want to get ourselves a step ahead or two or three uh, in terms of technology to figure out what's going to come down the road to make the item more perfect? It would be akin to writing a biography and wanting to have the facts constantly checked years after, or designing a car and, and wanting to know constantly how it could be improved and where, where the flaws are. I think the answer to this is yes, you want to have it attacked, but you want it attacked by your friends, not your enemies. So what they do now when they design these systems is they create what's called red teams. You create a group of really good attackers who then try to attack a system that the US government or some company has tried to design in an effort to make it that much better. Now, that can be difficult to do because there's actually a market now in faults in a program. So you've probably heard of zero-day uh, faults in, in, say, a Microsoft program. And what that means is a fault that would allow somebody to exploit it and get into the system. Governments hoard these now, but some people go off and look for zero-day faults and then go sell them to somebody who wants to do an attack. Part of the way Olympic Games was done was through 
the development of the, the discovery of some such faults in uh, Microsoft systems so that they could get from the laptops into uh, the computer systems at Natanz. The Iranians, as you would imagine, had walled off Natanz from any connection to the internet. So you had to make a leap to get into those systems. So yes, you do want your systems attacked, but you want to be attacking them yourself. To very specifically answer your question too, when it came to Google, I think this is true, uh, I may have the dates wrong, but they've been attacked from China for over a year and they didn't stop it and they didn't say anything. They let the attacks continue so that they could find out where they were coming from, try to pin it down more, and also build up the defenses. And they felt that if you don't stop the attacks, you let them keep happening, in some ways you're better off because you know, you know more than your attackers do about what's happening. And so they were able to figure out which servers around the world were sometimes being used. And so I suspect there's some of that going on now. If you read the account that uh, my colleague Nicole Perroth wrote about the attacks on the New York Times a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. that's exactly what the Times did. They let them lurk around for about four months so they could see what they were looking for and how they came in. Um, I'm going to do then the final question, if I may, unless there's somebody else stepping up to the plate, um, which is, I'm sorry, are you uh, stepping up for a question? Yes, you, uh, identify yourself, sure. please. Um, Elias Marriage, and my question is, is does this extend uh, to like future space missions and things like that? Like I know there's a plan to like eventually go to Mars with a manned mission mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, is there a concern about even space stations or anything that these kinds of attacks, has there been any talk in your circles about any concerns regarding any of that? I haven't heard it much about um, space exploration, but you hear it all the time about our space-based surveillance systems, which run everything. So you could imagine what it would do if you took out the GPS system, okay, which is based on 14, 18 satellites? I yeah, I mean, okay. So if you, yeah. if you took that, I mean, everything from what you turn on in your car to what the military now uses to target would happen. Um, spy satellites, you know, think about the imagery that you get not only from US government spy satellites, but think what you get from Google Earth, you know? Um, and in the run-up to the North Korean nuclear test, uh, that happened last night, we were getting every couple of days um, one meter resolution uh, imagery of the North Korean test site as we were trying to figure out how close they were getting to go do this. Ten years ago, you had to have some kind of top secret clearance for one meter imagery. Today, anybody can get yeah. it. And the question is, if all those satellites were lost, so. One of the concerns, particularly about what China's doing right now, is do they have a strategy to basically blind the U.S. technologically if there was a conflict in the Pacific? But the second question I had regarding, uh, there's a lot of digitization of archives, whether they're mm -hmm. film archives or photographic mm -hmm. archives with a lot of history that, um, mm -hmm. you know, being digitized can be manipulated, changed, doctored. I'm wondering, has there been any discussions in anything uh, that you have, any people you've come in contact with, with, for example, 
taking you know concentration camp you know footage or or uh, photographs and changing it so that history itself yeah. looks different to a future generation? Uh, I haven't, but it's an interesting thought. Um, I think it probably is something that could have happened, you know, has happened, you know, well before before digital age, photography. Uh, yeah. uh, digital photography. Um, I want to thank you very much. We have some thank announcements, you. but thank you very much, thank David. You all. Thank you, Walter Isaacson and David Sanger. And just before you leave, I just want to remind you, David Sanger will be signing his book. And near the Central Park West side of the building, our museum store is on the 77th Street side where you can purchase David Sanger's book and signed copies by Walter Isaacson. Now, if this program has whetted your appetite for cyber war, you can come to a Saturday morning program with a continental breakfast on cyber war and China. So we were just ending with that subject. So that's on March 9th. If you haven't received your brochure, we have plenty of, plenty of new brochures out for you to take and look at all the other programs that are available. And our new film series flyer is out. Uh, last Friday with the snowstorm, we had to cancel our third man film with David Denby from The New Yorker and Cotty Martin, but it's happening this Friday. So I want to see all of you back Friday night. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.